Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Joining me today is Carl Havens in Gainesville, Florida. Hello, Carl. Good morning. And we have Johnny Sisson in Chicago, Illinois. Hello, Johnny. Good morning. It's still dark out here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an early one this week for you. I do, do I'm not complaining. I never complain. I'm not a complainer. Well, it's all the fault of our guest this week. Um, as, uh, as people who have uh, seen the posts that we've done, we are welcoming back M from Emulsive.com in the, at the far end of the world. So, uh, hello, M. Greetings from your future, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, M's with us for two reasons this week. Uh, one is to transmit his early Christmas message uh, to the world, and uh, secondly, to, to give Carl and I a crash course in film photography. Uh, but before we do that, uh, here's Johnny with some feedback uh, from last week where we had uh, the fire starter aid from the uh, Sunday 16 podcast who pretty much stirred the pot. Uh, um, and we didn't exactly fall out, Johnny, but you know, we, we, we had a, a strong exchange of views occasionally, didn't, didn't we? I think so. I'm trying to remember uh, who did that episode. They go by so fast. Um, but yes, we, we, had, we had the wonderful aid on um uh the the professional uh podcaster i i think we have to say he's um uh he is an inspiration to all of us and we were so glad to have Adon um to throw us big fat softball questions that we could argue over um so that was great thank you so much aid and uh i guess we'll get right into this week then yeah absolutely okay so um m uh, is is with us uh, just to just to re refresh people that um, from from the the more digital world that haven't listened to the previous podcast where we had Em on uh, with us, Em is uh, uh, the man behind the Emulsive.com website, which is uh, I, th I think it must be the largest uh, analog based uh, and film based website in the world. Um, and uh, last time we had a chat about adapting lenses to M about putting the Hasselblad, no, it's not, not putting the Hasselblad things, but uh, using a Hasselblad and putting some weird and wonderful lenses on them and uh, many, many other things. But uh, M is back with us because he has his annual project um, that's about to start. In fact, uh, it is, it has technically speaking already started. So uh, M, would you like to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, cool. Um, it's .org, by the way. Oh, .org. Oh. I'm sorry. That's, that's, that's so much cooler having an org, isn't it, really? <laughs> it is. And the, the, the creaking door in the background added a, a nice little haunting effect to, to that, that particular thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, the uh, so Emulsive Santa is back for 2018. It's year four, which is crazy because I, <laughs> I, I don't know how it got this far. Um, <clears throat> but we, we kicked off pre-registration back in the middle of August. We kicked off uh, public registration in September. And as of this weekend, just gone, um, we've exceeded last year's player count. So we're, we're up to just a hair shy of 800 players in, in about 35 countries right now. Wow. That's, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, and have you got an estimate where, you, where you'd like to get to? You're on mute, M. Yes, you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Em. <Ed. laughs> 
um, yeah, no, we, we'd we'd really like to get over the the thousand player mark for for this year for 2018. Well, a, a thousand participants that will be that'll be quite something. So, do you want to explain a little bit more about uh, this emulsive secret Santa? What what it is um, and what it's all about? Yeah, cool. Well, um, assuming that no one's familiar with a, a Secret Santa gift exchange, essentially it's a um, an anonymous round-robin gift exchange, um, similar to, to what you'd play in an office. So everyone draws names out of the hat, keeps them secret, um, and then each each player essentially becomes the Secret Santa for for somebody else so everyone's giving somebody else a gift anonymously and you kind of go around in a ring until every every person giving a gift has also received one so emulsive secret santa is essentially that but distributed across the entire world through the entire analog photography community um, so as i said earlier this is the fourth year so we've already uh, hit uh, the same number of players, well, exceeded the same number of players last year. Um, and we're hoping to get up to that that kind of special 1,000 player milestone. The, the plan is, um, so registrations are open now. Anyone can go on to emulsive.org. Uh, they'll see a little banner ad which says registrations open. Click on that, um, start the registration process, um, and then you're on. And that's going to be open until the very beginning of November, so November the 4th. Once, once that, that deadline happens, we're going to stop all of the registrations, put everyone's name into a hat, draw everyone, and send them all emails, and then kick, kick everyone off into action to start, uh, to start preparing and sending their gifts. Right. So, so the, a few, few questions come, come, come from this. I've... Uh, I've I actually I pre-registered um, when I first heard about this. I I don't know if any if any other people did that, but it's just worth noting that uh, if anybody has pre-registered but they haven't actually done any more than that, then they absolutely still need to register with uh, Elster. I think it's uh, the the facilitator for this because that was something I I messed up on. Was so I thought that with by pre-registering I'd actually joined it, whereas in fact I think I'd uh, just registered to have. Uh, email sent to me about it rather than the actual thing so that's that's my mistake and i might be the only person in the world that's that's daft enough to do that but you know who knows for the uh, there may there may be other other, other people but um it'll be, it'll be i think you, you may be in a very very small percentile there <laughs> um so um the, the next stage um i i then uh, went to elster um and uh, registered with them and the next thing that happened for me was uh, it, it come to a, a screen and there were lots of things on there because I think Elst, Elst, it might be worth just talking a little bit about Elster itself because it's it's not just about um, uh, emulsive. Um, it's, there are plenty of other things on there because there were, there were lots of items that I could uh, wish for because there's a bit of some kind of a wish list there. And uh, the first one that I saw was a breast pump and uh, <laughs> which I, I get the feeling that that's not, well, I suppose it's an analog thing, definitely, but it's uh, it's nothing to do with emulsive, really. So, um, and that was a that's actually where I'm actually at with the, with this whole process because it asked me, well, what do I want? And I'm thinking, well, I don't know what I want. I mean, I know what I want to give. Um, I've got an idea about what I want to give, but I have no idea about yeah. what it is that I want. So perhaps you could just give us some ideas, and the, the people who are going to go through this process about how to get to the next stage. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, um, individual browsing history aside, um, <laughs> yeah. So, so <clears throat> Elster is uh, a an existing platform, and they provide a Secret Santa and, and other gift exchange services. So, before before starting this this all off in 2015, I had a look around at what was out there, at, at what options I had open to myself to, to build out a suitable platform, and, and Elster came up. Um, pretty much at the top of the list. Um, they're very good at what they do. The features that they have is exactly what I wanted to do <clears throat> or wanted to use. Now, once you have registered on Elster, yeah, you're absolutely right, Simon. You'll, you'll come to um, a page which will ask you to add your wish list, which is stuff that you would like to receive. And on there, you can either search for stuff and just add it. And I, I believe they integrate uh, Amazon links and, and links from various other places. Um, or you can actually find a, a link, like a chain link icon, right up there next to the search bar. And if you click on that, you can, you can enter your own text and enter a link for yourself. Now, what I'll say about the wish list is you're very much in the same boat as me because I, I, I have maybe one or two specifics and uh, one of those things I need to take off because I've just gone and bought it. Um, but generally, I'm more interested in, in uh, telling people a bit about me. So what I've used my wish for is just to write some text notes to say, you know, 20 and 35 mil shooter. Um, I love classic lenses and M42. So if you've got something you want to send over, just send it over. Um, send me something from where you are. So you can be really specific and, you know, Simon, for yourself, you can say, I want the, you know, Novacek breast pump 3000 or <laughs> whatever it is you've been looking at. Um, or, or you can say, yeah, you're, you're interested in old Canon FD lenses or you'd like to try some old expired black and white or you have a thing for slide film or Polaroids or Instax or, or so you don't have to put specific products on there, but what we'd like the, the wish list to be used for is to give the person who is matched as your Santa a really good guide or a really good kind of outline of what, what kind of person, what kind of shooter you are. Right. Now, the next question that, that comes from this is, is, is trying to work out, it's, it's one thing about what what do you want, but it's the other part is what what are you going to send, and what's yes. uh, what is viewed to be um, it's almost like a minimum and a maximum of uh, what you know is, is is one roll of film enough, or is uh, sending a, a a Nikon F four too much? Um, so where, where I think the answer is probably right on wrong on both of those. Um, so perhaps you can give us a bit of an outline on how to decide what it is that you're going to send. Yeah, so let, let's let's leave the the individual gifts just to one side for a minute because the, the really important thing here is to remember that you're you're connecting with real people who shoot film or shoot Instax or shoot wet plate or dry plate or whatever. Um, <clears throat> you're meeting somebody who you may not already be aware of in in the community, um, but you should be meeting with them as friends so we're we're asking everyone to you know pop a little card in pop a note in stick in some some sweets i mean um i think andre from negative positives last year he got sent he got sent salmon jerky from from alaska (laughs) (laughs) um so it's not it's not just about the 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 analog photography gifts it's about connecting with somebody and there, there have been some fantastic 
friendships just forged as a result of of this and and people who connected in in year one who you know i still see them talking and chatting away on 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 twitter on social media well i think one guy just sent his his 2016 match um some baby clothes because his his wife just gave birth to their first child and you know so it, it's it's about doing something to start what's hopefully going to be an ongoing relationship um as far as the individual gifts go well a lot of that's going to be dictated by your matches wish list. So you can see what kind of stuff that they're interested in. Maybe they'll give you a hint about a specific uh, format or a, a type of camera that they use. So I think whilst you, you can prepare, and I, I certainly do, um, kind of smaller sub-gifts of, of stuff that, that I know just generically will be interested, I'll, I'll typically wait until, until what I what I know of the of, of, of the match you know, coming to light after the draws happened. Um, in terms of a cash value, so this year we're asking for a minimum of, of $20 and whatever that translates to you in terms of value. That does not mean ordering uh, two rolls of superior from Amazon and having it delivered direct, which, which one person did last year and it's completely just... <laughs> Whatever the opposite of above and beyond is, it's that. That that that, that was our, our poster child for couldn't be bothered. Um, but on, on the other side of things, well, if you do have a spare F4 that's flying around and you want to send it off, then, then send it off. Um, over the years, we've had everything from TLRs and folders. Um, 2016, 2016? Maybe last year. I know it was last year. Last year saw a Leica M3 with the uh, uh, 53.5 Elmar go out that went from the Far East uh, all the way to the UK. So it, it's, it's really just what you feel you can do that's not going to break your bank. Um, so this year, the reason why we've put a guide limit of, say, 20 to up to about 100, that, that, that upper figure there is just to, to de-stress people and just to let them know, you know, you don't have to break the bank. You've got your own familial and, and, and whatever other pressures at this time of year. So do something, you know, send something as you would like to receive. I think that, just to underline it, that's probably the best thing. So so ultimately, you, you're going to end up in a, with a, a dialogue uh, with the with the person that uh, is, is matched with you. Uh, and is that dialogue actually a specific dialogue as in that, you know, you know who the, you know the name of the person or is that still anonymous? Well, you as as the Santa, um, so you, you essentially have two roles here. So you are the gift giver and you are the receiver of, the, of a gift as well. So you, let's say you match with, with Johnny. You can contact Johnny. Um, he doesn't know who you are. It's just, it's all done via Elster's uh, direct message service. So you can send, hi, I'm your Santa. I notice you've got this, this and this on your wish list, you know, what else? Let's just start talking. Um, so that that's one way to also uh, contact and communicate with uh, with your Santa. Now, let's say <clears throat> Carl is is sorry with your your recipient. Now, let's say Carl is is your Santa, Simon. So he will contact you. He knows who you are, but you don't know who he is. Right. So it's just this kind of it's from from the gifter to the giftee in that direction. Um, the, the 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 contact is completely anonymous now obviously when you when you eventually send your gifts you'll have a card you'll have a note in there 
um, you know, you can put down your social media handle. You can you can do whatever you want. Um, a lot of people on on social media when they're getting their gifts ready uh, to post, they'll just post saying, you know, uh, make a, a an image post and say, oh, this this gift is going to uh, Serbia, for example, or this gift is going to the states. Uh, generally speaking, when when the recipients open their gift they'll kind of trawl through the emulsive santa twitter feed <laughs> and just just double check it was the person who sent it that sent it <clears throat> so uh, the actual so as far as like the community side of this is 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 that is that where it's at then is it the on on the twitter feed is that is that how people uh, mass communicate Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it, it's on Twitter because that's um, that's where I live mostly. Um, so there's a dedicated uh, emulsive Santa uh, handle uh, up there, and you can see all the updates and um, in terms of sponsors and, and activities. And then you can see people will will be just tagging um, emulsive Santa, or they'll be using the um, emulsive Santa eighteen. Uh, hashtag to, to tag their gifts. Now, that does translate to Facebook. It does translate to Instagram as well. But in terms of having a single hub where everything's happening, um, Twitter is where it's at. And even if you don't have a Twitter account, you can still go to twitter.com slash Emulsive Santa and just see everything that's happening. Right, right. Makes sense. And that's only part of what's going on as well. But there's, a, there's another element to what you're doing as well, isn't there? Yeah, um, so planning and preparing for, for this event, I, I had a few last minute conversations which led me to believe that stuff that I, I was hoping to, to do next year was going to be possible this year. Um, and it's it's been a bit of a stress to, to get there, but we, we have a concept of what we're calling uh, community causes for this year's event. And what that translates to is we have 26 sponsors um, as of as of today um, on Emulsive Center. Now, in previous years, those sponsors will have sent out um, three gifts to three randomly selected uh, players of the game. So uh, roughly 60, 70 people would get a, an extra gift on top of the one that's coming from their center. What, what we decided to do this year was to say, okay, well, let's redirect those gifts so that instead of going to individual players, we essentially nominate shortlist three community causes. And those are people, so individuals or small groups who are out there running uh, classes, running workshops, um, commercially or, or, or for free or a mixture of both. Um, and they're leading these these kind of grassroots efforts to inform, educate, and inspire both this and the next generation of photographers. Now, I, I won't name any names because I, I don't want to give anyone an unfair advantage, but I'm sure that everyone can think of one person, two people, seven people um, in their uh, direct local community or the wider community on social media who fit that bill. So what we're asking people within the community to do is to jump onto emulsive.org, jump onto the uh, community causes page and nominate these people. So 
that nomination window currently is open until September 28th. Once once that window closes, myself and, and the rest of the, the, the Santa team for this year are going to be going through and essentially contacting every single one, finding out a bit more about them, um, creating a short list of, of probably... Uh, probably nine individual organizations and, and people and we're going to be putting that to the vote so we're going to be letting the participants for this year's event vote on who you know three of those those shortlists to, to to receive the sponsor gifts um and as far as the sponsor gifts go well it, it's it's going to be everything from um learning materials and media through to uh, film, chemistry, papers, tools, products, and and right at the very end of it, merchandise and and other services that are going to help them to continue delivering what you know what 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 they've been doing. So, M, this is Carl. So, um, listening to someone explain how to do it is one thing. I decided I would just do it because um, s- people who are listening might might want to give it a try. So, here's how easy it was um, doing it from scratch. While we were talking. I just Googled Secret Santa Emulsive, and it came up right at the top. I clicked on it, took me to your page, scrolled to the bottom, clicked on register, entered in the information, and, the, and then the last thing that I had to do was uh, to click a link, took me to the to the um, Elfster page, and um, up at the top where you can select to just um, put in text instead of picking a gift. I just typed in, I shoot a variety of old rangefinder cameras and I like to try unusual films. And then I, and then I uh, went into profile and I put my picture in there. And I think that's it. Yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much it. Okay, so it was real simple. So you've not bought a lens this week yet then, Carl? <laughs> <laughs> no, all of, all of the heckling about the um, auto Takamura that doesn't completely open up put me off of buying more lenses this week. Ah, the fabled semi-auto Takuma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, yeah, right. <laughs> okay, so this is a this is very much a beginner's question. So I didn't really start shooting film until about two years ago, and um, I started off with some um, Ilford um, FP4 125, and um, found that our local lab doesn't do a very good job with black and white film, so I, I pretty much stuck with XP2. For, for the next year, as um, mm. the results turned out nice, but I didn't, I didn't particularly like the film. And so um, I've been sending my film off to a, a, a commercial lab, the darkroom. I think they do a great job if you get the high resolution scans. But um, being a beginner, I've always had this idea in my head that um, the the, high, the higher number of films are going to be grainier than the lower number of films, but there's a lot more to it than that, right? Because I just sent you some photos, and um, I, I was up in um, in the Niagara Falls, Buffalo area, and I borrowed my brother's Bessa R4M camera. And um, the first day I went out, and I used um, Cosmo Photo, um, which is a 100 ASA film, mm-hmm. and I shot images. And the first picture that I posted there of sort of like an old, dilapidated um, uh, factory. That's that shot. That's a 100 film. And if and if mm-hmm. you and if if you enlarge that image, it's really grainy. But and yeah. then the, but then the next the next two images, especially the third one, those are shot on um, JCH Street Pan 400, mm-hmm. and they're they're not grainy at all. And um, yeah. 
And, and in fact, one of the things that I found was with this Cosmo photo film, and, I, and I've also found this with Fomapan 200, if I start messing around with it in Lightroom and, and pushing and pulling it and doing things, it gets really grainy. But that JCH street pan film, I could do all sorts of things with it, and, um, and that never happened. And, it's, and I don't understand. So I don't, I don't have the, the least understanding of what, of what's going on, except that I ordered some more JCH street pan because I really liked that film and the fact that I could play around with it a lot post-processing so that if I screwed mm -hmm. up the exposure, it didn't really matter. <clears throat> and and your, your lab is still uh, responsible same. for developing these, right? Same lab, so this is, so these are all from the same camera, lens, mm -hmm. uh, and lab, and um, uh, method of processing, I presume, and um, and the highest resolution scans that they'll do. Hmm. Well, there's there's a lot of factors that go into um, results that are grainy or not, um, and they don't all have to do with the film. So. Um, film is chemical. Number one, it's not. Uh, it's not. It's not binary. It's not semiconductors. It's not ones and zeros. So you have the grain structure of the film. You have whether it's a traditional grain, uh, whether it's a modern uh, tea grain. You have the chemistry that the film works optimally in, or, or prefers to be to be developed in, um, and then you have the temperature and the way that the film is, is moved around during development. So any of those kind of four-ish things can, can affect how a film looks. And especially when you're talking about labs, typically to, to save on uh, time, to save on expense, to essentially create a repeatable process that they can nail down. Um, labs will typically use um, one developer uh, with one development scheme so it's developer x temperature y it's going to be agitated for this much time and then it's going to be agitated for this much time so that, that, that's if you're not using a, a dip and dunk um uh, uh, processing method as, as let's say someone like the ilford lab does so it's 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 very easy to find um big variations in different chemistry being sent to labs because maybe they're using one particular um, agitation scheme and chemistry that film A prefers, but film B doesn't. And mm -hmm. whilst Cosmo is a faster film, yeah, I mean, the, the examples that you, uh, sorry, is a slower film and, and should technically have, have lower grain if you follow that form of logic. Um, the examples that you sent over, it, it looks more like Triax, right? Gritty, yeah. nice yeah. big fat grain. And I, I, I like it. Um, but I would say to get the best out of the Cosmo film, um, you'd, you'd probably want to look at a slightly different developer, one that doesn't produce as much grain for the, the kind of um, puffy grain that, that I personally associate with, uh, with, 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 with this particular emulsion. Um, so vaguely speaking, those are the four kind of criteria that, 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 that decide how a film's going to look afterwards. You've got a whole bunch of other stuff that, that's thrown into that equation if you start talking about how a particular film is structured and how the, 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 the layers of silver are, are, are put down. And um, yeah, 
just just a, a whole bunch of stuff which <laughs> might well be outside of the remit of this. Well, I think um, is. I'm just going to say, does that satisfy your your question? Well, I was wondering especially about um, the ability of the film to take a lot of um, adjustment um, in post processing. Mm. So that picture of the um, metal object in the black background that, that yeah. almost looks like I took it on a digital camera. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and, it does. And and but no, it's but it's uh, it's a JCH street pan image, and it, it was um, it didn't look like that when when I when I opened it up. Um, I, I really darkened the picture up tremendously, and uh, it retained a really nice, smooth, uh, detailed look to it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the examples of of well, the the rolls of street pan that I've shot in. Uh, 35mm 120. I, I, I love it. I, I love the, the tones and depending on how you develop it, you can build up contrast really, really fast. I think with with this and other uh, faster kind of 400 ISO films, it's definitely, it's it's easier to, to pull down um, something in Lightroom uh, if you overexposed it than it will be to pull out details if you've, if you've underexposed it. So I think yep. you, you'd find that image would look very, very different if you were starting from an underexposed negative. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, Carl. I was going to say the same thing because the, the example, it, uh, you're, it's much easier to pull the blacks down than to pull the highlights up. You're gonna, I mean, it just exposes, you know, the grain. You're gonna see a lot more grain, and it's it, things are um, are gonna show up than going more the other way. You know. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just, just a, a couple of uh, keywords. For some, I'm, I, I want to try and um, keep this as close to an idiot's guide as possible. But there are, there are also some things that I think it, we we do need to touch upon. Um, and there's two two words that uh, you've you've mentioned them, which I think just need a little bit more explaining. And the first one being emulsion, and the second one you touched upon silver. So. Um, It'd be good if you can just explain what you mean by emulsion, and uh, and secondly, uh, what's the deal with silver? <laughs> okay, so um, we wouldn't have analog photography without. Um, so the, the the grain, the little bits, uh, the little hundreds hundreds and thousands, or sprinkles, or whatever whatever the hell you want to call them, that make up the film grain. Um, these days, it's silver halide, which is a, 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 essentially a, a silver salt. So it's bits of silver which are um, fiddled about with to, to create um, grains which are sensitive or chemically sensitive to light. So they change um, based on an exposure to light. So when you start talking about a silver process or silver halides or um, you know, silver, silver gelatin, um, printing or photography, that's essentially film photography. So the the emulsion is essentially a gloopy mess that's filled with silver halide, um, which is, for want of a better word, just coated on, on a bit of plastic. So you, you get a sheet of plastic, you have this, this, this gelatin, this gelatinous emulsion, which is packed full of this, this, these halides, Grab a paintbrush, paint over a piece of plastic, let it dry, chop it up into, into strips, roll it up into a can, and then shoot it. And then you develop it. And, and that, that's your film. So when we talk about emulsion, we talk about the, the gloopy material that's laid down onto um, 
the substrate onto the actual plastic film coating itself. When we talk about silver halide, we're talking about the, the material that is essentially the grain of that film. Oh, great explanation. Um, next question for you. Only because I... Gloopy. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I, um, I, I was listening to the uh, one of the one of the three episodes one hundred of uh, the Sunday Sixteen podcast, and they they visited. Uh, actually, it was Graham and Rachel visited the uh, Ilford factory, and um, and which is a, a pretty fascinating listen to. I've got I've got to say, uh, but there was uh, the the bit that sort of um, pricked my ears up the most was um, when they were talk- and you just talked about it there, um, gelatin and uh, and the fact that uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, all film is not vegan friendly as a result of um, that the use of gelatin. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's something it's something that adox. If you go to uh, adox.de. Um, adox, adox, however you want to pronounce it. So they they deal with um, vegetarian friendly and vegan friendly film products, and whether or not it's possible to make a vegetarian, uh, a pure vegan uh, emulsion. And the simple answer right now is that um, there's so much involved in in the process of, of discovering an alternative. Um, material and alternative substance to to gelatin um that it's just not it's not been researched or the research that was conducted reached dead ends and and you know perhaps if if warren buffett or um bill gates wants to throw some money towards it we can do it i'm guessing bill gates is is still trying to cure malaria but maybe maybe <laughs> looking for a vegan <laughs> a vegan alternative <laughs> And it's, it's going to be something that will do at some point. So have some jello and shoot some film and it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, moving, moving, moving back to the conventional discussion now. Um, uh, you've got... Can, can, I, can, yeah. can I take a very quick tangent? Yeah. So the whole process of, of making film, making, making a film product that you hold in your hand... Um, wrapped in paper or, or, or encased in, in, in steel that you can put into a camera is ridiculously complicated. And I, I, I've completely oversimplified it. Um, but if you want to try, so if any of your listeners want to try to mess about with making their own film, there are two really, really easy ways to do it. The first one is to, is to make cyanotypes. And you, you can buy pre-coated paper or you can, you can even buy kind of powders that, that you mix up and coat on a piece of paper. Um, and cyanotypes result in those, those wacky kind of white on blue pictures that you see. They almost look like paintings. So you would have a piece of cyanotype paper. Let's say you put a leaf on there, take it out into the sun, expose it for a few minutes, and then you just wash it in, you, you wash it in, in plain water um, and, and it will develop. So that, that's one way. The other, the other thing to look at is there's a product out there, well, there are a few, um, called Liquid Light. Uh, that's that's mm-hmm. one that spring, springs to mind. And, and Liquid Light is, is essentially an emulsion that anyone can coat on anything at home, whether it be metal, plate, pieces of wood, fabric, whatever you um, And again, if you, if you figure out a way to expose that to light through a lens, um, you you have that loopy, emulsive emulsion uh, suddenly creates a, a picture for you. Just something to think about. Mm. Well, 
actually there's something I just just thought about, and and that's we've um, I've completely failed to give a um, the uh, super tenuous link as to how we're actually talking about film today. Um, just to, yeah, because we're, you know, this is the Classic Lenses podcast, and we've um, we've not really talked with about lenses or anything. And uh, um, and the the very tenuous link that I came up with for this um, for this special edition, I, I think we'll we'll call it that, um, is that many of us. Uh, well, one of the best ways to buy a classic lens is to buy is to find the camera that the lens is usually associated with um, because if you do that you've got a, a better chance of actually finding the lens that you want at a price you want to pay because it's it's a it's an odd thing but it's an absolute fact yeah, a general fact I should say those exceptions but if you actually you've, you've spotted the lens that you're after well if you say it's an M42 lens a Carl Zeiss Jena lens for, for instance um, one of the best ways of doing that is to go looking at Practica cameras and um, because a lot of people will actually be selling the camera and thinking that the camera is actually the valuable part and there's just this thing stuck on the front of it where it's actually the thing stuck on the front is where the value is and uh, so I've done that many times and as a result of that I've bought more cameras than I really wanted to because I'm half the time I'm far more interested in the lens than I am in the camera um, but there are times where you'll you'll pick a um, you'll buy this lens and you'll you'll pick a camera up and the camera is actually quite nice and it's quite appealing and and really what we what we want to do today is to is to encourage uh, people that have bought the camera along with the with with the lens and to um, and to you know, put some film in it but having said that uh, we were chatting about this earlier and it's not really quite as simple as that and there are probably a few things that you need to consider before you actually use that uh, that that camera um with some film in it because ultimately you've got to pay for some film unless there's some film with the camera so uh, uh johnny do you want to talk us through things to look for when uh, we have picked up that camera uh, for that lens yeah sure and and i and i want to Say um, a great guide to this, which we will post in the podcast notes, is uh, Mike Ekman's guide to buying old cameras, um, which is uh, it's about I don't know uh, twenty thousand words long. It's like you know how you get like one of those New York Magazine articles that you spend the whole weekend reading. It's like that length. Um, so so Mike Ekman has a great guide to just you know if you're going to buy an old camera, what to look for and. Uh, what they are and what the different types are and it's it's really fantastic and happy birthday Mike by the way uh, happy birthday Mike I think this will be going out right around his birthday time um, so uh, just a few kind of simple things um, and I have a few cameras here in front of me so if you hear clicky noises I'm kind of playing with them while we're doing this um, but um, yeah I mean there's a few things to look for and it, it a lot of it largely depends on um, if the camera is electronically controlled or not is probably the two biggest is, is the big dividing line when it comes to using an old camera. If it's electronically controlled, it probably looks a little more modern um, it more plastic, plasticky looking, not necessarily, but to some degree. Um, and those are going to be a little harder to check than like a, an older, you know, 35 millimeter camera. That's kind of steel and, you know, looks like metal and has black leather covering that that sort of thing. So, electronically controlled camera 
to some degree, all bets are off unless you can put a battery in it. You're just not going to know until you put a battery in and fire it up. Um, if it's an older camera, the battery might only be powering the light meter, which isn't really necessary, uh, essential to, to using the camera. So with that as a starting point, let's say that you've, let's say that you've, uh, you've picked up a lens attached to something like an old, you know, Spotmatic. Let's see, you've got an M42 lens and there is a, a camera behind it that says Pentax, uh, and it's sort of silver with a black or silver or black with a, you know, leatherette covering on it. Some things to look at would be, I mean, the first thing is really going to be the shutter. Um, and what it should do is it should wind and it should fire. And what I'm going to, what I'm going to do is just for sound effects here. Um, I've got a, a Spotmatic in front of me set to one second and it should sound like this. Right. Hear that. Right. So that's one second. Now, if I go to half a second and I go to a quarter of a second, you hear the progression between the speeds. So one thing you can do just as a start is to make sure that the speeds are actually firing. Um, so if you set it on one second, and then you set it on a half second, then a quarter second, you should hear a, a difference between those speeds. Um, and that's a pretty good indication that the camera shutter is at least going to work. Um, it's a little bit harder as you get up into the higher speeds to hear the difference, but let's just assume the lower speeds are working. Better chance the higher speeds are going to work. Um, the, the next thing I guess to look at is uh, if you open the back up, and I've opened up the back of this camera, um, typically there are some, uh, some fuzzy or foamy bits near where the hinge is on the back door, assuming that is a, a traditional 35 SLR with a hinged back door. And there's also a little bit of foam in the channel where the back of the camera latches to the body. If those foam seals are not intact, which most of the time they aren't on older cameras, you may or may not get some light leaks. Um, not a huge deal. Some people actually like the look of those light leaks in the photos, um, but it is something that that will affect you know the function of the camera. If light leaks are really bad, you might get a lot of light leaks uh, if the foam is entirely gone. So that's something to look at is um, is the foam. And usually, if you squeeze while well, the back of the, by the camera is closed, if you kind of squeeze the back of the camera and it feels a little bit springy and bouncy a good indication that the foam seals are probably gone and you might get some light leaks again not necessarily a problem if you don't care about light leaks um, but it's something to be aware of so shutter uh you know uh foam seals light seals etc um the shutter hopefully if you wind and advance the film the shutter hopefully looks nice and smooth and there's not a lot of wrinkles and cracks and you know dings in it that's a pretty good that the shutter is probably going to be intact. Um, and then if you see a little lever somewhere, um, on the typically on the front of the camera, don't touch it. That's the auto-destruct mechanism. Uh, so it's probably... And don't ever touch that or your camera will explode and die. So <laughs> avoid, avoid the auto-destruct uh, mechanism on your vintage camera. Um, now, as far as the light meter goes, uh, it really kind of depends on the camera system that you're using, how that light meter is functioning. The Spotmatics have um, a little switch on the side for stop-down metering that honestly I think really sucks. But um, it, So the battery, if there's a, a, a compartment somewhere for a battery, that's going to be your next uh, line of inspection. 
Um, it, honestly, I I kind of feel like um, it's not all that important to some degree whether or not the camera has a has a light meter. You can do a lot of a lot of guessing. You can use the Sunny 16 uh, method for figuring out exposure. But if you can, you want to take off if there's a battery cover on there. You want to try to take that off and see if there's a a battery inside or a big corroded disgusting rotting battery inside which is often the case um and if that's the case you, you might be out of luck with the meter but the camera will work again if it's a more modern camera and the battery compartment is bad then it's probably camera's probably toast um but anyway i mean that's that's kind of the just some basics um uh, uh about a functioning camera but i mean to the to me the big one is the shutter uh, if the shutter is 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 relatively working and you hear those speeds progressing as you wind and fire the camera that's probably enough to get started um you can deal with light leaks etc as you go but the shutter really needs to be working um so you know hopefully uh i feel i feel like the reason i i, I kind of say that this is somewhat important is because you don't i feel bad for people who get a really crappy camera and then shoot a roll of film and then really dislike the experience because they just got a crappy camera um so you know shutter wise i'd say if that's working kind of take it from there um and and that's probably enough to at least get started no i think that's a that's a great overview i mean there there're always going to be some other tips especially when you're talking about specific uh cameras yeah. but i think that's right. that's a that's a great overview that is um and happy birthday mike uh, as well <laughs> um so there so, so Simon, uh, johnny so um i mm-hmm. rambled on this morning at about 6:15 about another aspect of this and then i and then i went and deleted the the long post that i put but you guys managed to keep it um <laughs> so a lot of the people that who are that are on our um on our Facebook page are using digital cameras with classic lenses mounted on them. Um, oh, we're all the ones that, uh, according to the uh, Sunny 16 folks, are driving up the prices of classic lenses. And um, <laughs> Simon especially. I just listened to that. This Cha-ching. <laughs> so, um, um, just, everybody understands, right, that the Classic Lenses podcast is funded by every one of those purchases. <laughs> you get a little kickback. But I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, how, how does this actually work? So um, true, um, you can often get a, a very desirable lens if you if you buy it on a camera um, because the person thinks that, that you're wanting to get the whole set and it, it ends up working out well. And, and um, but, but sometimes what, what happens is the camera you get isn't a good camera to introduce a person to film photography yeah no no a lot of us yeah. a lot of us do it and we've already been doing film photography and we know when we get it we're just going to throw the camera away or we're going to stick it in a drawer or give it to someone but i'm thinking about some of my experiences so um i got my olympus pen 40 1.4 which rates right up there as one of the my favorite lenses one of the, one of the best ones if there was a hurricane and i had to grab one and stick it in my pocket i might be that one and take it with me it's absolutely flawless lens it's it's perfect on the Sony, um, or not? It's not perfect on. The, I haven't used it on the Sony. I don't. I don't have an adapter, but it's perfect on the Fuji, and uh, it was good on my Olympus. But it came on a Pen FT, and um, yeah, Pen FT had problems because it, it was apparently skipping frames or doing some bizarre thing, and I was right. only getting thirty six shots out of a roll instead of seventy two. But I didn't like it, you know. And so, um, if it had been my introduction to film photography. 
I don't know. I mean, so with some people, it could have just ended there. I, I hated using that that camera and um, I gave it to my brother. I, I didn't like mm -hmm. it. And then, and then another one was I wanted one of those small silver Tessars um, that, that you were raved about all the time. And I found one on an Exacta camera and I put a roll yeah. of film in it and I took it and I shot it. And I hated holding that funky shaped camera and looking down through that thing on the top and, and not being able to get it aligned. And, um, and remember, I traded you the the whole kit for a couple of lenses. Yeah, that I, I have your I you have Carl's beautiful exact right here. Well, you me on the shot that, but I didn't like it. And so, if that's the first one I had bought to get a lens, and then um, thought maybe it would be my entree into film photography, that wouldn't yeah. be a good experience. But then there's the Canon yeah. Seven. Then there's the Canon Seven. I, right. I wanted a I wanted an LTM fifty one point four lens, which I don't want to talk anymore about the lens, but. Mm. Um, I bought it on a Canon 7, and I got the whole thing for like $249 or some ridiculous price. And I like I liked the Canon 7, and I shot several rolls of film with it. But then I sure. discovered the Canon P, which was smaller and fit my hands better. And then I sold the 7 because I liked the P better. And then I discovered the 4SB uh, because you told me that was the best one. And so then I haven't used my Canon P for over a year and then i bought my little leica and that's what i've been using the most but it kind of led me down a path of really liking rangefinder cameras and getting much more into film photography than before so sometimes it can work and yeah, introduce yeah, a person yeah. successfully into film and i could see other cases where they would get turned off because the camera that they right. got even if it worked they wouldn't like sure. it yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's there's a lot of different types of cameras out there, and not all of them are super easy to use. I, I think I remember, um, I, was it um, Geza was talking about different rangefinder cameras that he had tried and never liked the experience. But he, I mean, he he, I think he had tried an Olympus XA, a Rolly thirty five, and a you know some some other weird camera, which to me those are really odd ducks, and they, and they're. <laughs> They're good cameras, but they're they're odd, and and I can see why he didn't have a good experience with them. Maybe because they are sort of you you, you kind of have to buy into how that camera works and um and 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 be in into how the oddities of that camera versus something really simple like you know again a Spotmatic where it, it just. It, it, it doesn't do a whole lot. It's really straightforward. And, and there are a lot of cameras like that that are going to be um, probably challenging <laughs> to use and might not be a good first introduction. Um, but it, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of the luck of the draw, I guess. It's whatever you pick up. But, I mean, any of the really the kind of classic 35 SLRs, to keep things simple, you know, a Pentax, a Canon, a Nikon, a Minolta, an Olympus, I mean, most of those are going to be fairly straightforward. Um, and I'm talking about the kind of the con consumer level cameras made in the, you know, 70s and 80s. Um, those are, they're, they're fairly straightforward. And yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're going to be SLRs. And I think that the, the biggest, yeah. the, the biggest problem that, that I've seen from people uh, who are digital native, let's say, so they've, they've only known digital photography and they're coming to film is is i just got an olympus trip how do i focus it it's like well right. you kind of don't you <laughs> guess so if you're if you're used to being able to focus stuff just buy an slr <laughs> right, and if right. you're if you're right. going to be buying a uh you know nikon 51.4 or olympus 
uh, 28.2 or you're going to be, you know, or you're going to be buying something like that, then just, just shoot with an SLR. There, there, there's no point going crazy and saying, right, I'm going to start off on this, as you said, you know, like a Role 35 SE or an Olympus XA4 yeah. or something or, or a, a, a Lomo LCA. I mean, something like that is, is going to be such a shock. <laughs> It's going to be such a shock that you're never going to want to touch it again. Um, But at least an SLR is is vaguely familiar. And if you Mm -hmm. if your your first film camera purchase happens to be um, an F5, an F6 from from Nikon or one of the Canon EOS bodies, the the one, the three, the five. Well, you're essentially looking at a precursor to to Canon and and Nikon Mm -hmm. Nikon. DSLRs anyway. So all of the functionality on there, with the exception of the rewind button, is going to be something that that exists on on yeah. that SLR. So, so uh, and I, actually, I was going to say, if, if I if I can just, I'm, I'm probably going to move the conversation on a little bit. Um, and that's you've you've got your S, you've got your SLR camera now, which, and you've decided this is it. I've uh, I'm going to I'm going to use this now. And um, and I want to go out and buy myself a, a roll of colour film and a roll of black and white film. What would you recommend that person do? Bearing in mind, you know nothing about that person or what they do. Okay, assuming assuming that they've come from digital, um, and that being the only thing that I know about them, I would say for your first roll of film, buy the the best grade of color and black and white film that you can because the results that you're going to get back assuming that you have um a nikon a canon uh, an olympus you know a leica a whatever um body and lens the, the, those results are going to be the best that you could get in terms of how sharp the images look and the grain and all of that kind of stuff so go out and grab yourself a roll of kodak portra 400 or a roll of Uh, Fuji Pro 400H on the color side. If you want to shoot black and white, then I'd recommend probably going down the road of um, uh, Ilford Delta uh, 400 Professional, HP5, uh, Tri-X, Kodak Tri-X, or Kodak T-Max. So Kodak T-Max and and Delta are are modern films. Um, They use modern grain. They're going to be much sharper than Ilford HP5 and and Kodak Tri-X, but Tri-X and HP5 are going to give you kind of obsidian blacks, visible grain, um, give you a bit more character. So Portra 400 or or Fuji Pro 400H on the color side, and then essentially any 400 speed film um, that is uh, Ilford Delta, Ilford HP5, um, Kodak. T-Max 400 or Kodak Tri-X 400. Yeah. So, so why, why 400 instead of 100? Well, uh, again, um, I'm, I'm making assumptions here. I'm probably going to offend the, the, the three people that are left listening to this after you failed with the introduction, <laughs> uh, Simon, for them. Um, and by the way, the, the, those three people are probably just going to be me, Johnny, and, and Carl, because I, I don't know up by this point. Um, so... It's it's on the assumption that um, the photographer will want the easiest, most flexible experience. Um, so we're not going to be getting into pushing film or pulling film. Um, so 400 speed film is going to give you 
is going to give you that flexibility. Sure. I mean, you could go with Portra 100, Delta 100, Tmax 100, um, uh, Ilford uh, FP4. It, it's, it's really down to the individual. But I would say always when someone's starting off, go for one of those 400 speed films because if they're, you know, they won't be able to change the, the, the ISO <clears throat> halfway through the roll. It's going to give them the most flexibility in low light as well as um, in, in the bright of day. Um, so yeah, not, not understanding anything ab about the person apart from they, they have come from a digital world. That's what I would say to use. You know, what's interesting, um, <clears throat> just going back for a, a moment, um, t talking about people transitioning from digital to, um, film cameras and, uh, the idea of getting a camera that is something that they're kind of familiar with is exactly the opposite of what, what has ended up appealing to me because I probably have gone through four different SLR cameras and um, I, I, I found them boring enough that I just I quit doing it. And the, and, the, and the worst case was the was a Nikon FA shooting um, Nikon lenses with um, XR100. And then um, it was just like shooting one of my digital cameras. Everything was, you know, pretty much done for me. I had an aperture priority. And then the images came back and, and I looked at some of them and I was like, well, these just look like the pictures I would take with a digital camera. But so, so I, so film, shooting film for me is a real special thing and, and not knowing like until I get it back, how it's going to turn out. And, and um, so I've really gravitated towards um, cameras like the Canon 4SB rangefinder or there's a really old Leica 3A that I have that are, um, not easy to use and they're nothing like the other but i i love them and i've been shooting way more film with those cameras than i ever shot on all of the slrs that i had yeah and it's it's very true there may be um digital leica shooters who would prefer to go with a rangefinder camera i think in term in terms of the the safest the safest bet <clears throat> it's you go with a um a, a well-performed Sturdy body, a decent lens, and essentially, um, I, I don't want to use the word general or generic, but the the most flexible films out there. I think once once that person understands whether they whether they enjoy that process of film, then that that's when all the wonderful introductions can happen. That's when you can say, okay, well, go out and shoot that HP five at eight hundred, or um, what are you? Shoot a, shoot the Portra four hundred at two hundred, and then over uh, over develop it a stop. Or hey, there's this crazy ISO ISO uh, ten film from Adox that you, that you can go and shoot. Try doing long exposures um, on that of water and just just see what happens. So uh, I think that that initial introduction for someone who who is maybe suffering from a you know they they've purchased a camera to buy a lens. The camera turns out to be working as per as per Johnny's uh, quick overview. There, they want to go out and shoot it, and you just want to want to give them the the most accessible. I hate to use the word safest, but but certainly the most flexible um, yeah. option to see whether that process is for them. Because I've, I've just finished. This is a very quick aside. I've, I've just finished my my film list uh, series, or at least the main listing part of that. And there are, there are over 180 films that are still in production today. And we're, we're talking individual film stocks, not different formats of film 
all piled up together. Now, if you take out the rebrands from that, so if you take out stuff like um, the Arista products from uh, from Freestyle Photo in, in the US, so they're rebranded Fomapan. So if you remove the, the, the rebranded products from there, of those 180, there are still about 130 individual film stocks, 130 of them. Color, uh, color negative, color slide, black and white negative, black and white slide, plus instant. So what about film that's expired? A friend of mine who used to be into <laughs> photography gave me a bunch of film. I have no idea how he stored it. I don't know how old it is. It's not in boxes anymore. And, and a bunch of the rolls are, are um, slide film, color slide film. God, it yeah. could be 10 years old. I mean, is it probably just <laughs> crap, you know, or am I wasting my money? No, no. I mean, it's shooting, shooting slide film that if you don't know when it expired, if you don't know how it's been stored, um, shooting expired film is going to be a bit of a crapshoot. Yep. Um, so, so there is definitely that. One thing you, you can do very quickly to ascertain the age is just take a photo on your phone and just drag it into Google Images. Um, and then you'll be able to see that that particular cartridge design or that particular roll film design is from this, you know, this rough era. So ah. Kodak, Ilford, the lot, they've been, they've been pretty good with, with just um, changing the designs every few years. So you can, you can see kind of what era films belong to. Now, <laughs> I, I'm I'm in the I'm in the process of writing an article which covers um, expired films and this ridiculous rule that that is out there, which is <laughs> you got to you got to overexpose it for every decade it's expired. Now, maybe that article will be out at some point in October. But can I, can I just use this podcast as a vehicle to just say stop saying that? Stop saying it. It's wrong. <laughs> it's it's completely and utterly wrong. Because if if a film was was it, was em, em, a, it, it can't be wrong. Because that's what, what that's what Johnny told me. <laughs> it's okay. Johnny's only wrong because because little little Davy told him that, and little Davy got told that by by Uncle Bob, and and Uncle Bob, well, he's a bit damaged. So let's let. <laughs> so, the whole thing about shooting expired film is is knowing where it came from. Now, if you don't know where that film came from or if you don't know the condition that it was stored in, the best way to shoot it is to bracket. So you take a meter reading and you say, I'm going to shoot one stop slower. I'm going to shoot an another frame at what it tells me and I'm going to shoot one, one stop faster. So that will tell you, you know, worst case on a roll of 36 exposures, you're you're only going to be getting a third of your shots. You're only going to be getting twelve usable shots. But most of the people who who follow the one stop, you know, one stop over for every decade, will, will end up coming back with with hideously overexposed photographs. Um, the slower a film is, the 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 slower it loses its sensitivity. So heat, humidity. Um, cosmic background radiation, nuclear fallout, all of that stuff, in all seriousness, all of that stuff affects your uh, film sensitivity. And over the time, the, 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 those silver halides that are in that, in that gloop of that emulsion are going to be affected by, by one of those external factors, and they're going to lose their sensitivity. Now, they're going to 
they're going to lose their sen sensitivity in a roughly uniform way, which means that you might get your film back and there's like a, a, a mask over it, a fog, essentially. So that will be base fog of the film. If you've got, if you buy a role, let's say today, of um, Ilford Pan F, which is a 50 ISO, FP4, which is 125, and HP5, which is ISO 400. If you put those and just leave them outside, uh, sorry, leave them leave them out on a on a on a side table or something like that, you come back and shoot those films in ten years at box speed. The Pan F is going to be the one that that is closer to its box speed um, because it's it won't have lost as much as much speed. If you buy those three films and you put them in your glove box today in the middle of summer, at the end of the summer, wherever you are in the world, um, and you shoot those at the end of the week, assuming that, that they've been baking like an oven in there, those forms are probably already going to be ruined. So, so definitely, you've got all of these external factors out there. And unless you know that that film was bought and it was put in a freezer <clears throat> and it's never been removed, um, it's, it's going to be a bit of guesswork. But the, the best way that I find is, well... If it's, if it's zero to 10 years expired, I'll shoot it at box speed. If it's 20, uh, sorry, 10 to let's say 20 years expired, um, I'll probably take a third of a stop off. And if it's over, over 20, maybe 30 years expired, then I'll, I'll, I'll cut it down by, by, half, by, by a full stop. Um, I, I was sent some um, Tri-X, oh, what, what was it? Kodak Tri-X Pan film or something like that from um, a chap called Craig Pindell on Twitter. And that, that film expired in 1979. I, I overexposed by half a stop because um, he'd said that it hadn't been stored particularly well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I shot that, that was two years ago. So I shot a film that hadn't been cold stored for 40 years, overexposed by, by a stop. Um, and it came out, the, the film came out overexposed. I, I should have just taken a third off. Job done. Yeah. It's it's also yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it's also worth note, noting there's a difference. I, well, I believe there's a difference between color film and um, black and white film as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Color film the dyes will break down uh, faster than the silver loses sensitivity. Um, generally speaking, slide films because they're slower, they they will do better than than color negative. Yeah, you can you can pick up expired slide film that expired twenty. 20, 20 plus years ago, you can shoot that camera at box speed and it's fine. Um, but you pick up, let's, and let's say that's, for argument, that's a Kodak Ektachrome, so a 100 ISO film. Um, I shot some Kodak Ektar 1000 uh, a couple of years ago, <laughs> and it's a mush. It looks like you're, looks like you're, you're trying to tune your old television. Um, it, it, it's completely gone. So color negative, generally, I'll... Uh, I will overexpose that more. Um, color slide, generally I won't. I mean, just um, in 2016, I shot a roll of uh, some 1996 Ektachrome 160T, which is a, a tungsten balanced film. Shot it outside, um, took took a third off, the, the uh, overexposed by a third of a stop. It came out really nicely. Had these lovely warm tones, which I wasn't expecting, um, with a bit of a magenta tint. Um, certainly, it it did much better than a similarly aged uh, Ferrania film that I that I shot around about the same time, which was mostly dead. So you talked about storing film, and um, 
I've thought about this mm. several times. I, I put, I have all my film in the refrigerator, not in the freezer. Yep. And um, yep. so when you have it in the freezer, it, it, it'll store longer, I, apparently. So when you take out a roll to use, what do you, you let it sit out overnight before you use it, or what, what do you do? Um, well, first of all, yeah, I, 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 I take up too much space in, in, in the fridge at home, so my, my, my film's kind of half-half. So my, my slide film um, is pretty much all in the freezer and everything else is in the fridge. If I'm, if I'm storing film, I'll make sure that it's, at, at the very least, the 120 film is in its uh, paper or, or plastic or foil wrapper, because um, <clears throat> obviously they are still humid environments. There's still a lot of water in the air and what have you. Um, if it's 135 film, I'll either put it into a, a multi-film case or I'll put it into one of the 135 cans. Um, if I'm taking out frozen stock, then I'll normally take that out the night before, put it into uh, uh, some some cases like the, the JCH cases, those kinds of things, and I'll leave them in the fridge. Generally, I know that that if I'm if I'm going somewhere, especially to shoot, I'm going to be in kind of mid twenties, late twenty degrees C temperatures. So I'll just take the film out before I leave. And by the time I get there, I know that it's it's warmed up. Um, if, if I know that I'm going out to shoot, kind of immediately, um, then yeah, I'll just I'll just take the film out when I wake up. It it, it depends. I mean, uh, essentially, I'll give I'll give the film um, overnight in the freezer and then probably an hour at room temperature. Um, I'd I'd like to. Um, rewind the conversation a, a little bit because um, when we were talking about you know, first time films and you were recommending 400 films uh, a word yeah. that kept on cropping up was flexibility and I don't think we've really explained what flexibility is and in my view that comes under something that we call latitude and my understanding of latitude it's, it's sort of like um, dynamic range in digital um, do you want to explain, a little, say if I'm wrong or not, but uh, explain a little bit more about <laughs> about flexibility and, and latitude? Yeah, I, well, with flexibility, actually, I was coming from the point of view of um, cock-up prevention. So, so if you're shooting a slower film, uh, if you're shooting a 100-speed film, you're, you're, you're going to have to expose it at... Um, uh, uh, two stops less than an ISO 400 film. So if you happen to be going out and you're, you're shooting your F4 whatever lens and you're getting one twenty-fifth of a second with your ISO 400 film, well, you're going to need to be hand-holding that same shot at a 30th. So the flexibility is just you've got, you've got a wider range of shutter speeds. In addition, you, you also you, you have the ability to, to, to overexpose or, or, or underexpose um, without worrying about getting into into that kind of low shutter speed territory. Because I know a, a lot of people still have issues, especially with, with new gear. Can I handhold this at 130th or can I handhold this at 115th? Um, so that, that that's where I was coming from. In terms of in terms of um, the the latitude of of the film stocks, that that really it it's more a question of an individual film stock. Um, so something like, let's say, 
something like a role ortho 25 is going to give you uh, less perceived latitude than something like pan f because it's an author an orthochromatic film it's not sensitive to red anything red that you shoot it's going to turn out black is also a very slow speed film as well so you're you know if you're going to be hand holding that your your ability to choose different shutter speeds is going to be limited by the amount of light that you have on that day if, if you're looking at something like portra 400 for example um that incorporates kodak's uh, vision 3 technology so vision 3 is the name that kodak um, give to their current range of motion picture films. Now you can go ahead and over or underexpose that film by three, four. I think I've seen tests of it being over and underexposed by five stops, um, and you'll you'll still get usable images out of it. So that 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 whole question of of latitude and and placement of shadows and metering and all of that kind of stuff that is. That that's probably best saved for a future conversation. I think. No, absolutely. Um, actually, there was a, there was another another thing that I wrote down as well um, when you talked about a film being tungsten balanced. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, so back in the day, uh, films were either daylight balanced or they were balanced. So they were designed to be used primarily indoors or outdoors. Um, and so essentially under artificial light or natural light. So 3,000-ish Kelvin or 5,000-ish Kelvin. The, the only film that I'm aware of or that I can remember today that's still in production that is um, tungsten balanced is Sinistil's 800T. So if you're shooting that outside in daylight, you're going to get cooler tones. If you're shooting it indoors under artificial light, you're going to get uh, a more balanced scene. Now, with tungsten balanced films, um, people would use very, very um, light orange filters, essentially. They're called warming filters. It's a 89A, B, and C uh, type rattan filter. And essentially, you just pop that onto the front of your lens, <clears throat> um, and you can use that to shoot outside. And it just raises the, the, the color temperature of the film um, to so that it, it, it's more daylight balanced. And I think actually there is, I think Polaris, Polaris or what, one of the, the new special effects films from Yodica um, is, and I think one of Revelog's, well, but they're, they're, those are both um, experimental film stocks which give you color shifts and stuff like that. Um, okay, thanks for that. Um, another, another... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I've, uh, I'm, I've, I've got a list of questions. I see. I'm sort of work, working my way through them, and um, and I was having a chat to. Uh, oh, I'm going to say his name wrong now, so I do apologise. It's either uh, Cheyenne or Cheyenne uh, Morrison, and uh, who uh, should be our guest next week. Actually, uh, we've got to just sort oh, out, nice. sort out times. Look forward to it. He is he's a complete slide film nut, man after my own heart. <laughs> well, he's uh, got a great deal of knowledge about. A, quite a few uh, subjects as well i mean one of the things we'll be talking about with things like tomioka lenses and, and things like that um but uh he suggested that um i should bring up the subject of ectochrome uh, which is interesting in itself of course because ectochrome stopped and now ectochrome is back so it uh, is so tell us a little bit about that 
Well, it's it's back in it. (laughs) 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 Um, it, It's quite interesting. There's a there's a really cool book written by a guy called Robert Shanebrook, and it's it's. I hope I remember that right. And it's um, it's called Making Kodak Film, and he's he's just done the the third edition, I believe. Um, it, It is the Bible for how Kodak produced film. Um, and it talks about um, departmental mentalities. It talks about uh, film manufacturing infrastructure. And it, 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 he put this together based on interviews with people he used to work at at Kodak. I think he's a, he's a 20, 30, maybe, maybe 40 year veteran. Um, and he, he said to me in a conversation a couple of years ago, that it would be very, very hard for Kodak to bring back slide film because everyone who was involved in making it has left. The, the, the knowledge no, doesn't, doesn't exist w- w- within the business. And this is, this is kind of mid-2016, mid maybe early 2016, I, I, I don't know. So, so when, when Kodak came out and they announced it at CES back in 2017, um, I was flabbergasted, amazed, so so happy. Um, either they'd either they'd got their old engineers back, or they they worked on worked on it completely from scratch as a as a brand new formulation. And yeah, they they've had coating issues, they've had um, quality issues, they've had they've had more issues than they've told us about because that that film. And the fact that it's out there with the beta testers, the fact that the results that are coming back are just wonderful. Um, I can't wait. I can't wait. And I, I hope I hope to see it this year. Well, I'm, I'm particularly excited about that because that the, back in the day when I used to um, use film, first time around back in the 80s, uh, that was that was absolutely my, my favourite film. I just lo- used to love the blues from it. You know, yeah. A good ectochrome sky is like nothing else. Um, so uh, yeah, really looking forward to seeing that one come come back. Yeah, very much so. So on, on a on a unrelated, but I'm still on the same general theme. <laughs> um, so I've shot two rolls of film recently on this um, Pen EES half frame camera, which I love yep. because it fits in the back pocket of my jeans, and I can carry it around with me and just shoot pictures of things. And they both and they both I, sh- I shot. Um, let's see. Um, Foma Pan 100, and then I shot a roll of Foma Pan 200, and they and they both are really grainy looking images, and they're not very sharp. And Simon has explained this this to me as as being a function of the half frame, but I don't understand why that would be because it's really just exposing half of the half of the piece of the same film. And so I have this thing in my head that it isn't that it's it's that the camera can't focus as nicely as I can on a, a typical lens or something about the time of day or it's the film because I've seen really crisp clear half frame shots posted online look at it from this point of view okay so the the Canon pen range of of half frame cameras um had that's for Canon Olympus pen half frame cameras had uh, amongst the sharpest lenses um for that format 
I mean, they're, 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 they're stunning. I've got a D3, and I, I lament the fact that my D3 has died several times because I want to keep using it, even though it is ridiculously annoying trying to finish 72 frames <laughs> from a roll of money. Um, I think you you need to mate the the appropriate film with the format. If you start off with a film that's going to be grainy-ish anyway, and you blow it up to you scan it um, and and display it at a resolution that you would take that that you would show a frame of thirty five mil on. It's going to look different. Um, oh, personally, yeah. I mean, personally, I I I'm not a huge fan of Fomapan one hundred in one thirty five. Um, not at all. And I've whinged and I've complained about it for years. Um, I am not a, a huge fan of Fomapan 100 or 200 in 120 either. Um, but on 4x5, you can take my Fomapan 100 and 200 from my cold, dead hands. It is wonderful. Um, and it's, 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 it's definitely down to the, to the size of the sensor, let's say. Um, in, 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 in this particular situation. So if, you're, if, you, if you want to have a, a scan of a, an image that two th that's 2,000 pixels across and your source is half a postage stamp, which is essentially what half frame is, um, that's going to be much grainier than a frame of 35 mil, which is four times larger. If you shoot the same film on medium format, uh, six by six, let's say, that's going to be four times larger than that. So it's going to look it's it's going to be look better at that same resolution. And if you're shooting uh, the same scene on a on a piece of film that's um, four by five inches as opposed to maybe one inch by half an inch, then that same scene's going to look much better. You're going to, you're going to have less obtrusive grain for sure. Okay, so, so I like this you're... camera, and if I, and I want to stick a new roll in it now and shoot it, that's and I have some Ilford Pan one Pan four hundred. Would that be yep. a good pairing? It, it, it's all right. I mean, uh, the uh, Ilford's pan is is something that only recently became available in the in the West. It's still a consumer grade film, um, so you're going to be getting uh, kind of grain size and, and quality that's going to be close to um, closer to Kentmere than 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 Foma pan because obviously Kentmere is is manufactured um, in house by by Harman Technology. Um, I would I would suggest going with Ilford Delta 100 Professional, um, going with Tmax 100, going with one of those sharper, uh, more modern, more clinical. Some people would say um, T-grain films, and, and seeing how that works for you. So I have FP4 plus 125. How about that? It's a great film. <laughs> okay I'm just wondering what to put in it next. Am I going to use it anymore? <laughs> yeah, no, I, FP4, FP4 is, is fantastic. And again, depending on, on how that film's developed, you can get something that, that might have more pronounced, more visible grain. You might get something that's pin sharp. I, I'll, I'll send you a couple of links to, um, uh, to images that I posted on there. I, I, okay. I think it'll be a good pairing, to be honest. Yeah. If, if you're determined to use a slow-ish black and white film that you have in your fridge. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Um, thought, thoughts occurring to me that 
as we as we're talking here that that there are, there's, there's so much we can just talk about films and we haven't even scratched the sur- well we haven't even touched it really uh, the developing side of things and um, I I think that that's probably worthy of a of a of another discussion or certainly a part two of this discussion if um, if our listeners have enjoyed this show I mean if uh, if I download numbers of um, just the three of us then uh, perhaps we might not go there again but, uh, but well, it, it, I would say. If, you, if if your listeners enjoyed the show, then um, that should be reflected by by lower listenership, right? So if, <laughs> <laughs> if it's lower than normal, then then you know that you should do it again. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think that exactly. um, I, th- I, I I think I, I don't want to go on to the processing side because I think we'll just be here for ab- ab- absolutely ever. Um, but I do I do have um, I've I've got. I don't know if we want to do this and one, one, one question each or something on those. But I've certainly got one one question for you for, from a personal side of things. Um, can, can, can I yeah. very quickly say something about 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 the black black and white? Just to just to yeah, yeah. go back and answer Carl's question. Um, if Carl, because I know we, we spoke about this um, about the, the the lads and the processes, and we don't really you don't always know what chemicals and processes they use. Um, try. Ilford XP2 Super. Okay. So that's a, that's a chromogenic black and white film. So that's a black and white film that is processed as a normal C41 process, as a normal color film process. So if you drop off a roll of that and Ektar and Pro 400H and you know as many other films as you want, it'll all be dunked in the same chemistry. Um, so right. that, and again, a few people don't like that because. They say, oh, it doesn't underexpose nicely, or it, it looks too digital, or it looks this. I, I, I really like this stuff. And it's, yeah. it's something that you will get. There is no variation in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, the chems are fresh. Job done. Yeah, I, I used to, I don't know what it was in the, was it X, I think it was XP1 I used to use uh, back, back in the right. 80s. I think that's what it was. I used to love that. Um, I didn't do my own processing at the time. I do my own black and white now, but uh, I, I was just going to lead me to a processing question, but I'm, I'm, I'm holding back on that. Um, but uh, I've just got a, a, a question that might help me out or might not. Um, and that I've got uh, quite a bit of um, Delta, uh, is it? Yeah, Delta 3200. Um which and I've got it on 120 in particular, so that that's given me another headache. Um, yes, because you know shut, shutter speeds—the fastest shutter speed I can shoot with 120 film is 500th of a second, and you're talking about 3,200 ISO. Um, yes. And I'd like to be able to use this. <laughs> um, and I'm just wondering—is there something? Oh, it is a processing question, but uh, is there? <laughs> is there <laughs> Is there um, is there something I can I, I can do to uh, uh, with 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 perhaps with on the processing side? By the way, I usually use rod- Rodinol uh, if I do it myself. Right. But I might if it's something a bit more technical, I might send it off to a lab. Um, so, right. is there a way I can actually shoot that at a at a lower speed and actually still get something out of it without it blowing the highlights and and, and so on, being horribly overexposed? Absolutely. I mean. Um find a time machine, take the camera, deliver it to your 20 year old self and get him to shoot the concert. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> at, at, at box speed, job done. Um, <clears throat> but uh, DeLoreans aren't in as much um, 
volume as there used to be back in the 80s. So you, you, you could do you could do one or two things. So first of all, just like um, Kodak P3200, uh, 3200 is not that film's native ISO. So that that film, the basic processing for that film includes an X stop push to push it to 3200. I think if it's in it's in Ilford's documentation, but I believe that the the native speed for that film is 1250. Mm-hmm. So it's half your problem sorted, number one. So that, yeah. that that's that's one that's one stop. Um, and if you're processing it in, in Rodinol, you could do a semi-stand, you could you could develop it as as normally. Um, I, I would recommend a a, a high dilution. Mm-hmm. Just uh, because of the way that Rodinol behaves, and the fact that it's quite a, a, a puffy, grainy film, anyway. Um, if you're assuming you're shooting it at EI twelve fifty, um, actually at that speed, or even at sixteen hundred with an orange filter on it, that that film looks amazing. And it took me years to 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 understand that. I, I when I first started shooting that film, I I did not enjoy it. I did not appreciate it. Um, but uh, EI twelve fifty, EI sixteen hundred with an orange filter is going to is going to be good, and that that's also going to take you what a third. Yeah, yeah, half. it's going to help. Yeah. Um, worst case, if you happen to be shooting the surface of the sun, then get a uh, get an ND filter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah get a, it, again, if you're going to be shooting it in the daylight, so I think if you're shooting it um, morning, kind of um, blue hour. If you're going to be shooting in in the evening, kind of dusk, or if you're shooting it at night, um, it's 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 really nice. It's yeah. really nice. But shooting it during the day, lower the speed, slap a, a coloured filter or an ND filter on it, um, and if you develop it in Rodinol, then yeah, I'd say probably go for one to fifty. I think would be would be my recommendation. Well, we, we're getting very technical there, but one I, I do, and I'm going to carry on with that, and that's I, I just do semi-stand at 1 to 100 as my normal uh, behaviour. So would you... So And what's your what's your definition of semi-stand? You're doing a... a, a you're inverting every half an hour or so. E- or exactly. So it's a, one, one hour in total with an inversion at uh, 30 minutes. And and what, what dilution did you say? 1, one, to, one to 100. 1 to 100. Yeah, it's about right. Yeah. So carry on yeah. as carry on as normal. <laughs> that's that's the that's the thing that I, I keep hearing about uh, Rodinol is uh, and, and yeah. stand processing. It's you can you can almost uh, well people do actually don't they? They can actually effectively shoot at different speeds with the same film at the same time and develop it at the same time and actually still get results from it. Yeah, yeah. And the the great thing about Rodinol is that okay, although it it increases grain. Uh, to some people's eye, it has great um, accutance. So the, the the contrast that you get on the edges of things is really high. Um, so you'll still get apparent sharpness, um, kind of on on edges and whatnot. I mean, I, I did a I did a stand the other day. I think it was an HC one ten by accident, and I, I I knew I was going out. So I needed to do it to do a three hour stand. Uh, I knew I was going out, so I thought, okay, I'm just going to go and put it in the fridge. So I just took took the the tank about two hours in, put it in the fridge, did my makeup, and then and then <laughs> ran out of the house. And I, I got back maybe five or six hours later, and just thinking, oh, all right, I've, I've screwed it up. 
um, pulled it out, uh, rinsed it, hung them up, perfect negatives. Because it'll get to a point, especially when you're at, at high dilutions like 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 one that you just described, where the developer will ev- it will eventually expire. And with with one shot developers, once you make that developer, it's only got a limited shelf life as well. So I think Adox Silver Max developer it will last for about an hour, and then it will die. Mm. Um, there's some pyro cats, some staining developers, which will give your your negatives like a brown tint, which which some people really like. Um, that that'll last for about fifteen minutes in the open air. Mm. So. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I no, think no, with, with rock, it's almost like magic, right? You can just you put any film in at any speed, one to a hundred, leave it in a corner for an hour, and it's almost job done. Yeah, I love the stuff. Um, okay, uh, mm-hmm. Carl and Johnny, is there anything? That, well, uh, Johnny first. Is there anything you you might have any anything for M, or you just want to get off your chest before we disappear? Uh, I'm biting my tongue about stand developing. In road and all, but that's probably better for another. <laughs> it's yeah, too much definitely. of a can of can of worms. Yeah, it it, it really is, and it's uh, there's there's a there's a lot of stuff that you sh- that there's there's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't use stand development because of the the effect it can have on yeah. on on your negatives. Um, but for the sake of this conversation, it's magic. Exactly. It works. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's good <laughs> for me. <laughs> Rodinal's magic. I, I let's uh, that's a great place to to leave that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, from you, Carl. Well, no, I, I appreciate the answers to the questions that I had, and um, I just bought five rolls of XP two super. It's funny because this is like the first black and white film that I used to use two years ago, and now I'm back to having it again. But if it's gonna if it's gonna have good results in that. And that half frame camera, I, just, I really like carrying that camera around with me, always, yeah. and uh, and having it to pull out and take a shot. So and I'm glad you were here to re-recommend that film to Carl because I think I've told him about a hundred times he should be using that film more, and he never listens to me. But he never no. told me that. Who ever. Is, I did too. Never. But who no. who wants to who wants to listen to Dad? You know, no, never so. told me that. Oh, sure, I did. Show me written yeah. evidence. You, you, I will. You, you never, you never want to hear the things. You never want to listen to the things. Um, exactly. Told, told to you by people, people who love you. So exactly. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, your results may vary. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot that caveat. Eh? <laughs> well, see, the, the great thing about film photography is we all know it's got this this amazing process that you can jump in and modify, whether it be from the pre-visualization to the way you shoot to the way that you develop. Yeah, because yeah. of that, if someone doesn't produce results that are identical to yours, you can just say, well, you, you did it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> oh, man. Right, so, so Em, is, is there anything else um, you might want to talk about or... Uh... Or do you want to just say goodbye to us now? Dangerous question. Yeah. Um, no, I, I'd, I'd, I'd really just like to um, try and encourage people who are listening to have a look at the, the, the Secret Santa registration page. There's a link right up there which talks about the sponsors and about the community causes. I want as many people to think about and to nominate the people they know around them um, who are out there 
uh, running lessons, running workshops, running classes, informing, educating and inspiring the next generation of film photographers. And although that may not be 100% of your relevant to, to, to your audience, I'm sure that there are um, film shooters like me who do listen. So get, get these guys nominated. They do good work and we want to support them. Excellent. And, uh, and do you want to just mention all the places where uh, people can follow what you do? Uh, yeah, um, emulsive.org is the website. Um, you can find me pretty much everywhere on social media as Emulsive Film, um, although not on Google Plus. There I'm something like three three one four one five six nine eight five B underscore Lear. So, so if you if, if you do still use Google Plus, if it hasn't been canned, uh, just do a search for Emulsive, and I'm on there. But otherwise, just Emulsive Film is the one to get me on. Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much for uh, being our guest today. Um, I've learned quite a bit there. I mean, there was there were some things that you know we were asking questions that we pretty much knew the answers to there, but there were other areas that uh, we've had, certainly had our, our knowledge expanded. I don't know about Johnny, but certainly Carl and I, anyway. Um, um, so, thank you again. Um, no, you're very welcome. Thanks for for suffering with me again for this this past couple of hours. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, Johnny, uh, do you want to say goodbye to people? Goodbye. Um, uh, yeah, say goodbye, and you want me to mention a few, probably a few things about where you can catch up with us all. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, let's start right out with the email, since I think I remember it today. You can send us an email at classiclensespodcast at gmail dot com. Uh, so if you really want to get your comment read, that's the best place to, to send it. Um, you can catch up with me on Instagram. I am at Sisson Photography there. Uh, and you can also find me at Central Camera Company in Chicago uh, most days. That's great. And Carl? Okay, you can find me on the Photography with Classic Lenses Facebook page and on Instagram, which is my name, Carl Havens, and also on Flickr, also my name is Carl Havens. It's Carl with a K. I was just going to say, you, you sound different from how you sounded last week. I sound different? <laughs> yeah. How do I talk? <laughs> different than last week, eh? It, it, sound, it sounds like you didn't listen to the show and John, Johnny doing his impersonation of you. <laughs> I, I heard the impersonation. <laughs> okay, well... I heard their birthday. That's right. I left early last week. Yeah. Okay. I, yes, I did hear that. Yeah. <laughs> good, good guys. Good. Yeah. Real good. <laughs> okay. And um, finally, uh, I can be found uh, on Instagram and Flickr and a, a few other places. Uh, generally, as uh, Simon Forster Photographic uh, on Flickr. I think it just I'm under Simon Forster. Um, I've also got a website where you can buy KNF adapters at a uh, good price. Uh, which is Simon Forster photographic.co.uk um, and finally uh, thanks for listening um, we're all on and Emma, Emma joins us occasionally on uh, the in the Facebook group photography with classic lenses I hope you've enjoyed the show this week and it'll be great if you can join us again next week goodbye so vaguely then we're going to cover um, an idiot idiot's guide to film <clears throat> so kind of what we're what recommendations to start off at what recommendations if you want a bit more control and then just leave it at that um 
Carl, do you want to talk about car boots for some reason? Uh, Johnny's talking about <laughs> Johnny's talking about drinking developers and something controversial. Um, Carl's also supplied some gear porn. Thank you, Carl. Uh, and then someone's going to be talking about byproducts. Oh, that's Simon with his his chat about discharge, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's pretty much summed the whole podcast up quite nicely, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, there, there's going to be no 47 second piss break, by the way. This time, just. <laughs> I'm surprised nobody commented on that. I mean, I've got there were some great pieces of music I could have used. I mean, I used a quite a quite a good one, but there was one that was just brilliant. But it was just it was just too too close to being reality. Some people might have thought, you know, you're taking your mic into the toilet with you. <laughs> one of the big things for um, we didn't mention this for for people who are shooting digital with classic lenses, and then they pick up a camera and they want to shoot film, is um, now, some people aren't like this, but some some folks with digital. I mean, there's nothing to lose by taking a lot of photos. You just delete them in Lightroom when you're, you know, when you open up the, the images. Um, but with film, you really have to change your mindset, and it doesn't happen immediately. I, I don't shoot, you know, a spray of photos every time I go out with my digital camera, but I shoot a, quite a few. And uh, and so, you know, my first couple of rolls, I was I was taking more photos. Than I really wanted to. After I realized what, you know, that's either going to take you time, or it's going to cost you money. And so now I, yeah. I finally got myself into the mindset that it's okay that I could go out at lunchtime when it's not so damn hot here, and I can start doing it again and walk around for half an hour, and I might not even see anything that I want to take a photo of. Yeah. Now I wouldn't I wouldn't do that with a digital camera, but I am with my film camera now because I know when yep. I send the film in, it's going to be expensive to get it developed. Well, check out, um, check out. Uh, I did an interview last week with Kim Weston, uh, who's the grandson of Edward Weston. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing you guys know who Edward Weston is. Oh, yeah. um, the silence tells me you probably don't. Okay, good. Um, so he, so he, he's, he, he runs uh, workshops and there's hybrid right. shooters and there's, there's a mix of mixed bag on there. But his last. The, the last segment of that interview and it is not safe for work by the way because <laughs> um, it's all mostly naked ladies um, the, the last section he, he, he talks about how he has dealt with digital shooters and how he tries to get them to consider mindfulness when they're when they're taking photos um, and if, if the if the ultimate aim of a photo is to have it printed off somewhere well it doesn't matter what you do in, in photoshop you're never going to make a good print out of a shit out of a shit capture um the, the other way that you can really easily train yourself is just buy some expensive film and know that every single time you take that shot it's going to be costing you ten dollars fifteen dollars <laughs> yeah that, <right. laughs> but no i think um just to, to to kind of circle back to use that horrible term um i think it, it would be good to get some feedback once the um once the podcast has been out for for a couple of days and just ask people what they think um what they felt was too long what they'd like to see covered again um i like i like the idea of um the approach of, of film photography carl that, that that you just described and looking at the the differences and how mindfulness can help you be a better photographer regardless of your medium um, and I think circling back into development and talking about, you know, what is hands down the, 
easiest, quickest and cheapest way to develop your own negatives? What's the best way to start that journey? I think that can be covered really easily. When you get into developers, um, and, and I, I, I have dipped a couple of, I've dipped my ankle in there, let's say. I mean, that stuff is not conducive to a podcast. You're going to be right. boring the shit out of everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's why I didn't want to, I didn't want to, M, you were, you, you gave such a great overview. I didn't want to throw wrenches in and add more unnecessary details to muck everything up. That was a really it's great frustrating, over. right? It, it's yeah, frustrating sure. because, I mean, yeah. because there, there's things that you wanted to say about, about the camera. And I was saying, mention the, the, the fucking, the, the mirror break sponge. He forgot the mirror break sponge or, you know, that, right. that's, that's really right. important or, or, oh, you know, there's there's these two guys out there who can, they'll sell you foam for any camera that you can install right. yourself for, for, yeah. for 10 bucks. But I, I think, yeah, keeping keeping things as generic as possible, whilst it might alienate some more technically <laughs> advanced readers, I think sure. for, for the vast majority of people, it's, it's more than enough. Yeah, we, we had a good conversation. It was either last week or the week before about about mindfulness i think it was last week and um and in the, in the sunny 16 episode that i just listened to they were talking about mindfulness too it was just coincidental because i just picked one to listen to and um it, it applies to digital and and I, and I had said that um for me it's a really important part of photography because when i go out that's all i have to think about it i don't have to think about all this shit at work and, and things that are going yeah. on and then and i just go walk around and i just take photos and then and then the three day next three days in a row I did exactly the opposite. I went out um, with a particular photo in my mind that I wanted to take, and I and I went to a place where the light was going to be right, and found a good yeah. situation. And three days in a row, I, I did a totally different thing than I usually do. I didn't just walk around. I went to places at a certain time to take a particular photo. <laughs> that, that's pre. That's that's your previs. So you're you're, you're yeah. trying to capture that scene, and with any luck. You'll be you'll be trying to capture that scene the way that you want it for the next ten or twenty years, and and yeah. every right. single time you'll find something something different about it, and that that's one of the beauties of of um, kind of non non portrait photography, just that 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 search for perfection. I think portrait photography is slightly different; it's more about the moment. Oh, mate, I found this crazy, batshit, insane, super strong Japanese beer, right? Uh. And it's, and it, it, but it's it's not beer. It's like it's like it's like fruit urine, and it's um <laughs> it's it's just it's it's huge. I mean, the, the, the can that I'm looking at, it's called a uh, mix pano. It's got pictures of apples and grapes and peaches on the front of it. It looks oh, like a kid's drink. It's it's nine percent, <laughs> right? So you, you knock you knock this back, and not only do you have yeah. instant wino breath, not only do you, do you yeah, have that right. kind of whole whole kind of homeless person thing going on, but it, it knocks you for six. And I don't give a shit how much whiskey you drink. You drink one of these, you yeah. drink one of these, and that's it. You're in city, honestly. <laughs> <laughs>